You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, a year into the pandemic, we speak to a therapist about the mental health of his clients and the issues we have all faced in an unprecedented year of lockdown. Because so many things happened in 2020, it's hard to orient what to focus on. Was it the shelter in place piece? Was it the financial piece? There's so many aspects to it. But in terms of the, the going back to the question of grief and loss and death, I think the, the absence of, of who the folks are who did die in this pandemic, that will take time. I'm Mel Baker filling in for Laura Wenes. This is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. It has been nearly a year since the Bay Area went into lockdown as the COVID-19 pandemic changed our lives, leaving thousands dead in our region alone tens of thousands out of work, and all of us trying to cope with a world turned upside down. Add to that trauma the bubbling rage over racial injustice so long denied and the chaos and terror on top of the federal government and top that all off with an insurrection that came within a hair's breadth of leaving dozens of our elected leaders in the hands of an angry mob. So for all of us in the United States, death on a scale of a 9-11 every day and ongoing low-level dread for months on end. What does that do to an average person? How do we cope? And as things get better, how do we make sure that trauma has been examined and dealt with on an individual level so it doesn't harm ourselves and those around us in the years to come? Christopher Zapeda is a clinical counselor with the Grateful Heart Holistic Therapy Center, where he specializes in PTSD, complex trauma, and recent traumatic events. His practice includes work with clients across the state, but is primarily focused in Oakland and San Francisco. Christoph, welcome to Civic. Thank you for having me. So you've had a pretty broad practice working with everyone from uh, children to people dealing with substance abuse issues and members of the LGBTQ community, among others, but with a major focus on trauma. So what are you seeing in your practice right now, and how does it differ from, say, spring of 2019? I think one of the biggest differences is that over the course of the year, when the lockdowns first started happening, people were in shock, and then uh, they slightly adjusted, and then things started happening across the nation and globally that then put them back into shock again, and then just happened continuously over the year. So everybody got kind of conditioned into relaxation or a sense of like uh, easing up and adjustment, but then also falling back into a state of shock. And so a year into it, I would say people are just at different places. Some people may have been stuck on certain events that happened to them, whereas others have maybe found themselves more ready for the reopening of, of their local communities. So you're almost like a slinky effect, right? So it kind of yeah. like, it would go kind of come in and out, 
in and out. So you'd get used, you'd kind of adjust, and then there'd be another level of compression, emotional and, and stress, and then things would ease up and they'd come in and out. I mean, I, I, I think of as a journalist, I mean, I'm constantly in, in sync with the news cycle. I, I do that for a living. I need to be constantly aware of it. And it's not something I'm allowed, can allow myself to get away from. And I was just really conscious of how much emotional trauma that put me through. But I think that was true of everybody this year. It was not something you could avoid. Everybody was hanging on, whether it was uh, the latest news about the uh, pandemic itself, whether it was the latest news about the chaos at the, fed of the federal level of the government, whether it was the latest news of how the state government and the local government was responding to the pandemic, whether it was the latest news about racial injustice. This was a, a year where we were uh, plugged into events that were far beyond what we personally had any direct control over and how helpless that made us feel. So that must have just really compounded and been a pressure cooker for all of your clients that are dealing with the things that that they have to manage normally, relationships and uh, issues around substance abuse uh, and all of that. So what are what are some of the stories of people that you some of the clients you were working with, what are the, some of the things that, that they were dealing with? Yeah, I think absolutely the unexpected shock of having a lot of what may have previously been their coping strategies for times of stress being taken away. For some, I noticed a hearing a lot of uh, touch deprivation, um, simply from not being able to hug and shake hands with close ones. And then maybe not even being able to be as active. For instance, when we had the the fires in the Bay Area, folks were shelter in place, but the air quality was poor. So they were also in indoors with a sort of view of this orange glow that seemed mysterious and eerie. And so there was like a feeling of entrapment while also maybe a sense of like, helplessness due to the extended period of being shelter in place in general. The stressors became combined in their intensities. One thing I noticed also is that everybody kind of would be going back and forth between uh, COVID fatigue versus COVID frustration. So you'd have one pool of people wanting to talk and vent about their experience that they're really tired of COVID, but then other folks kind of being too saturated with all the news. And so then the people who were seeking support mm -hmm. couldn't maybe receive the support that they wanted or needed because the other individuals around them who would normally be there for support were also overwhelmed. Um, so there was a lot of individuals just sort of experiencing their own trauma and stressors while also uh, experiencing the ones around them. So what does that do in the way of, of leaving kind of embedded trauma, a, a scar that sticks with us? When you mentioned this, the orange skies, the emotional impact of that, that still sticks with me. The minute you mention orange sky, I mm -hmm. remember how cold it was mm -hmm. on what was otherwise warm. I remember walking out and feeling the shock of not feeling the warmth of the sun on me. And I can feel that lack of temperature. It's hard to describe, but it was a, it was a, it was a, the the feeling sense of it. 
I will remember that visual of the orange, but also that physical sense of it. If I ever have to call up that memory, it's an emotional memory. And I would call that a kind of a trauma in the sense mm-hmm. that it's an embedded memory that will always stick with me as I remember that morning of the emotional sky when we were all walking out and looking up at the sky and going, wow, that I'm in a apocalyptic movie right now. This is bizarre. This is insane. And, and the mm-hmm. strange mix of emotions. So what are you seeing in the, in the way of trauma and embedded emotions that people have been kind of whipsawed by during this time period? And, and how do you, as a clinician, deal with helping people work through those, those things so that they don't impact them? There was a really great point about the sight of the orange and the feeling, the coldness, because um, one of the aspects of trauma is that images, body sensations, emotions, and beliefs can all get sort of tied to an experience. And so by sort of bringing up one of those, the body sensation, the image, or the emotion, then it can activate the whole memory in general. And so there's this sort of generalization effect through associative memory that can complicate trauma. So to give an example, if let's say somebody grew up from childhood and had sort of maybe alcoholic parents and maybe had a lot of misattunement, they might may become sensitive to times when information was itself a trigger and stressful. And so even though it's not like a, a single traumatic event, the sort of like being hypervigilance that may come from the constant not knowing what's going to happen next can then get activated later. So in terms of how this relates to the pandemic is that because it was a novel virus, because the the certainty of financial concerns and physical health and media trustworthiness or uh, reliability, like all of these uncertainties then maybe could have led folks to have a higher level of anxiety due to being primed from past traumas. So triggers from present day things will trigger past day things so that it just kind of ratchets ratchets up and ratchets up and ratchets up. So then what do you try to do? Go back and find the original triggers and and work with those and use techniques to try to de-escalate those so that the person is able to be in the present moment and deal with deal with the actual step one, step two, step three, this is what's happening now, this is how I work through this moment now, et cetera? Yeah. So because I feel like COVID really sort of exposed folks' vulnerability to trauma and other stressors, what I found to be helpful is first getting a sense of a person's backstory and then sort of identifying what difficult experience and adverse experiences that they've had, and then seeing how that connects today and how that's being magnified due to COVID. And so if a person is able to differentiate what is a COVID stressor versus a non-COVID stressor, such as like all of the public places being closed, that would probably fall under the, the domain of a COVID stressor. But let's say having to do chores and clean and stuff, that would be like a a non-COVID stressor. So to be able to clarify what is happening as opposed to feeling like you're in a washer machine of all these, what is the shirts, what's the pants, what's the clothes, 
of it all mixing together, trying to be able to create a sense of internal order has been really one of the ways that a lot of people have been able to uh, kind of survive COVID. Tell me a little bit about how it's been to be a therapist during this time. So I'm mean, you're doing this on Zoom, right? Mostly or? Mostly on phone, actually, uh, surprisingly. I think I always have been giving the option to clients. Do you prefer phone or video? Something about the clients that I seem to personally attract have preferred phone. Some folks uh, felt more at ease because it was sort of familiar rather than going to sort of a quote unquote clinical office. For others, it was maybe even body image related issues. They felt safer and more comfortable talking about certain subjects without being physically seen. Mm. Um, one of the the hard parts is just the typical internet connection cutting off when when it's very important information, if I miss a word or like a subtlety. And the experience of having my cat show up on screen has sort of invited like its own kind of intimacy that that has benefited clients in some mm. ways. Also the aspect of less commuting for clients to go to therapy, that has made it easier for some. Um, mm -hmm. And I th at first there was a lot of people who were phobic of teletherapy, but eventually um, they kind of got used to it and they almost kind of got good at it. And, and when I say good at it, what I mean is um, they almost seem to like speak with a different voice in a sense, like they felt safer, hmm. which I was very surprised about. So you get the intimacy of being able to visually see them and, mm -hmm. and chat with them, but not actually being in the room. So it's a little too close. That's interesting because I would have thought that it would be kind of the opposite in the sense mm -hmm. that you're losing all of these mm -hmm. cues you're seeing them from like the chest up mm -hmm. and just this limited little box without like a lot of the depth that you get. I mean, every time we see somebody all out of a Zoom call, one of the things that comes out of my mouth is, so good to see you in three dimensions, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and yeah, that seems to work pretty well. So that's, that's encouraging, right? Uh, yeah. So do you think you'll be doing a fair number of your clients in the Zoom mode after this is done? I don't plan on returning to person this year. Next year, I'm, I would like to. I think at least a third of my clients I would like to keep on teletherapy. Um, and in the future, I may just give them the option. I think the another interesting dynamic is the fact that they're at home. There is this feeling of maybe they're in their own territory hmm. that um, can has sometimes helped people feel more comfortable. The ongoing thing is when people had partners or other roommates and privacy was difficult. There have been a few times when it just felt much more challenging. Having the safety to go somewhere else off-site, sort of, so to speak, created that sense of like a ritual or safety. Hmm. Now you have another, uh, you work with some other uh, clients in a different position where you work in person. Yeah. So in addition to private practice, I work in a nonprofit in San Mateo as a residential therapist in a substance use program for women. 
And that has given me also a different experience of therapy during time of COVID. I really see the the difference that touch makes. A lot of folks who maybe were shut down because they've been deprived of touch seem to really respond well to a hug when they're going through a rough time. And one of the hard parts though, is that because we're in person, when they leave and then have to transition back into Zoom AA meetings or 12-step or support groups or therapy, that has been a big obstacle, I would say. And so they might really thrive and grow in person, but the transition has been really difficult. I'm speaking with Christoph Zapeda. He's a clinical counselor with the Grateful Heart Holistic Therapy Center. We're human animals. We, we're yeah. all descended from primates. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Primates groom each other and touch each other and hit each other in a, <laughs> you know, good ways and bad ways. They touch each other. They have sex. They do all of these things. That has got to have been a real, a real challenge, uh, even for people who are in partnerships, but especially for people who aren't, who don't at least have a partner they can, they can touch every day and be in the physical presence of. This is almost like a, a, an experiment to give us all a taste of what it must be like, at least to, and again, I don't want to make too much of an overstatement of this, to a less degree of what it's like to be incarcerated and to be cut Mm -hmm. off from a lot of those opportunities to be uh, close to other people. How has that distorted people? And are people, have you found clients that were taking tremendous risks to experience that sense of touch? Yeah, um, there, there's been a hunger for it, but I also noticed that there's also it's been it's almost like a split in two ways. I feel like some folks may really crave it, but then there's also a phobia of touch at the same time of desiring it. And I know that some folks have still tried to um, explore dating during COVID. That's been an interesting area that I really haven't really, um, I've heard sort of people talk about it, but I noticed that some folks sort of, when they allude to it, there's a sort of like shame or secrecy about it that Mm kind of haven't been able to reach any conclusions. But it it has been interesting that there might be a sense of danger, but there's also like a real drive for it. Um, I think- Well, I know know people who have have gotten, you know, been begun relationships and things, but they, you know, they've tested and they've done all sorts of things. The, you know, more casual, it's, it's odd, you know, you compare it to another ap- uh, pandemic in which, which was sexual transmission, but uh, during the HIV AIDS crisis, but that was, there was safer sex that one could indulge in. You can't really have safer sex when it's a respiratory disease, right? You can't, there is no mm-hmm. real safer way to be intimate with somebody when we're talking about breath, <laughs> you can't be in the same room with them. I don't know how you become intimate with them. So that's got to have been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the idea of consent has also shifted. It's sometimes folks will kind of plan for an in-person date. It's almost like a pre-date in the sense that I'm I'm going to not engage or, put, or interact with anybody else in hopes of dating another person. What has also been interesting is the way that for the folks who live in, who 
are identify within the polyamorous community. Some folks have maybe been more living with other primary partners and then engaging less with other other partners that they may be having. And so there was also some sort of like shift within that community that they had to negotiate their own boundaries and relationship changes. Kind of like education pods you know, that have yes. been done for school kids, right? You know, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, how do we, how do we define this, this, this boundary? So going forward, now you've got the vaccines are starting. People are starting to be vaccinated. Uh, California is nearing 20% vaccination. That's supposed to ramp up dramatically in the next two months. What are you hearing from your clients now as people start to imagine a time period when things will look, if not like they did in early 2020, but will start to look different, where people will be able to be with each other again and be around each other? What are they expecting and what do you think will happen? What do you think will be the overhang from this period of psychological trauma? What are you keeping an eye out for with your clients? What are you concerned about will creep up on us unawares from this period of of this traumatic pressure uh, that we've all, all gone through? I think, I think some folks, um, just like how there have been different waves of trauma, some people may recover faster and may readjust to communities opening up, but others may still continue to feel anxiety, uncomfortable, and distrust of, of the vaccine. And um, I think that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be fatigued, shell shock, and experience grief, because some people may feel like opening up too quickly is may be a disservice to the folks who have passed as a result of um, COVID. So remembrance is going to be its own episode. And I'm unsure of like how grief and mourning is going to come about. But I just imagine that folks are going to be at different stages of grief initially. And it it seems like we haven't dealt with that at all as a community, as a country. I mean, the level of death is staggering, and yet it's invisible. Um, it it exceeds the death, the, the dead of World War II. It exceeds any comparable death within the lifetime of most adults. It is, mm-hmm. it's a huge number of people, even, even in our region. And yet they've kind of all gone unremarked, except for their families and mm-hmm. the, the trauma and impact there. And of course, we can talk about equity and the fact that many of those deaths, a larger proportion of them than the percentage of population have occurred in uh, Latinx families, in African-American families, in uh, working working families as opposed to white collar families. And the impact on those communities is different. So how do, how do we reckon with that? What... Uh, what do you think needs to happen for us to, to deal with that sense of, of death and loss as a greater community? What are you hoping, what are you telling your clients that 
they need to do to kind of mark that if they've lost somebody in their family and they weren't able to do the normal grieving process? You know, that's something I'm still trying to figure out myself. Um, and I, I wish I had the answer for that. And I think this maybe goes back to that, that piece about even therapists are also sort of trying to ground themselves in this experience and, and just trying to have that flexibility and just really taking everyone's experience as, as individualized. Yeah. Some people are thinking that this, we're coming out of this period. Uh, we may see an economic boom. We may see uh, kind of this sense of relief if everything goes as we hope it will. And it'll be kind of a roaring 20s sort of thing. We can look back on the past uh, when the pandemic ended in uh, 1918, 1919, plus the end of World War One. the only comparable period that we have to this time. And there was kind of this elation and almost uh, kind of insane euphoria. Let's ignore what just happened. Let's just party. Let's have fun. Do you think that there's a possibility of that? Do you do you see that sort of developing in some of your clients? They just don't want to think about it. I know as a parallel uh, among the uh, the people that survived HIV/AIDS. I know when the uh, drugs came out in the mid '90s within that community, as a member of that community, I know there was a real sense of wanting to just escape, thinking about it, mm -hmm. talking about it. Mm -hmm. We had a treatment. Let's get the heck away from this. Let's not deal with this. I don't want to talk about it anymore. My friends are living now. I'm alive now. Let's, let's have fun. Let's talk about something else. And there was mm -hmm. a real move away from it. And it took another decade before people started to really deal with the trauma and loss in that community. So are you, you and your colleagues talking at all about anything like that that might be occurring? Is that coming up in conversation? I think uh, I have heard of some colleagues talking about how it's hard to plan what stories will be spoken about, partially because, because so many things happened in 2020, it's hard to orient what to focus on was it the shelter in place piece? Was it the financial piece? There's so many aspects to it, but in terms of the, the going back to the question of grief um, and loss and death, uh, I think the, the absence of, of who the folks are who did die in this pandemic, that will take time. I think what I imagine is, um, yeah, multitude of responses. Even I'm having wordlessness to mm -hmm. describe it. Uh, I think, I think, um, I think the fact that it's it was so hard to plan for anything last year and this year. I think knowing how to plan, how to process, is going to be its own challenge. All right. Well, Christoph, thank you for joining us on Civic. Okay. Thank you. I've been speaking with Christoph Zepeda. He's a clinical counselor with the Grateful Heart Holistic Therapy Center. I'm Mel Baker, filling in for Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at SFF dot o r g
Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Civic airs Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Thanks for listening.